This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Life itself is like a river. The life force that God has breathed into creation flows like a river. Think of how a river flows. It is not like a man-made artificial canal or aqueduct that goes in a straight line. It meanders and changes direction. It responds to the rest of the topography. It flows around large rocks so that it keeps on flowing, yet over time also wears away those rocks, which changes the direction of the river again. There are times it is still and calm, and other times there are waterfalls or rapids. It's not like a straight highway. You are never really sure of what is around the next bend until you get there. Life is like that. We cannot know everything that life will bring our way. We can chart a course, but the river of life takes unexpected turns and goes through whitewater rapids at times. At other times, our life is smooth sailing and all is calm. But it isn't just the circumstances of life that change, the scenery that we pass while sailing down the river. It is also our faith, beliefs, and experience of God that will change over time, the currents in the water that are unseen by others, and that can rock our boat as well. Life happens, and it isn't all planned. It takes unexpected turns, and not everyone understands that. Life is like a river, and it isn't just the outside scenery that changes. It's the direction and strength of the currents in the water as well. It's our beliefs and our experience of God, writes Martin. Valeria interviews Martin Trench, the author of Secrets of Spiritual Growth, discovering where you are and what comes next on your journey of faith. Originally from Scotland, Martin Trench and his family moved to Canada almost 12 years ago, where Martin is the lead pastor of Gateway Alliance Church, an innovative and growing church in Edmonton, Alberta. Martin is an author, a popular inspirational speaker, a Bible teacher, and he consults with other churches and leaders, coaching them on spiritual health, church growth, and spiritual innovation. Martin has a Doctor of Theology, as well as holding bachelor's and master's degrees in theology, philosophy, and metaphysics. Here is the interview with Martin Trench. own words, who is Martin Trench? Well, I guess I am a seeker after truth. I was actually born to Scottish parents, but in South America. So I, I lived for the first few years of my life in Peru um, before my family moved back to the UK. And then in the last 12 years, I've lived in Canada. So 
I've lived in some different countries and experienced different cultures. When I was a teenager, I explored all the things that teenagers explore, looking, I guess, for some kind of fulfillment in life and so on. Eventually, I found that uh, I, I realized that I was looking for something spiritual in my life. And once I found that, I eventually uh, became a pastor. So today I'm a pastor. I'm an inspirational speaker um, and a teacher. Before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Secrets of Spiritual Growth, Discovering Where You Are and What Comes Next on Your Journey of Faith. I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned before we started recording. So the first question is, what is life to you, Martin? First of all, I think that uh, if you ask me this at different times in my life, I may have had different answers. Um, so I like the image. I've got two images in my mind when I think about life. The first one is the image of a flower, like a bud, opening up, blossoming. I think that many of us in life, uh, we we go through life tight, like that bulb, tightly locked up inside. And as we experience more of life, as we make personal discoveries, we tend to open up like a flower does. So I don't see life as, as like being a blank canvas that things get added to on your journey. I think you probably have everything you need within you even before you begin your journey. And it's more a journey of unfolding, of opening up and of discovery. And so that image of a, of a flower blossoming and opening up, actually, I got that a number of the old new thought teachers used to use that. And I found that so help, such a helpful image. Another really um, helpful way to think about life, I take it from the Bible where it talks about the river of life. And it's the concept that life is like a river. It's not like a highway. It's not like an artificial river, like a canal. It's not straight. You can't always see the road ahead. Like a river, life takes many unexpected turns. Things will happen that we didn't plan. We will go through rough patches of water that we didn't want to experience. We all like this, the plain sailing part of life. And so I think that although I'm a big believer in planning and, um, and setting goals and things like that, I think there's a higher priority even in that. And I think that to truly live life, you have to be able to respond to things outside of your control that you haven't planned without it without that affecting you emotionally. So if I was on a boat going down a river, I may plan for a nice calm sail down that river, but I don't know where there's rough patches in the water. And if I and if I throw a tantrum because the river's not the way I wanted it to be, <laughs> that's not going to help me. I need to learn to respond. So I think that if life is like a river, which is an image that the Bible actually uses quite a few times, if life is like a river, then it, sh it should always be moving forward. Um, we can, we have a responsibility for how we chart our course in that river, but we, we like a river, we need to always be open to respond to unexpected events. And I think the 
the capacity to respond to things is an an even greater superpower than the the capacity to plan things in advance. That's powerful and it's so true. I agree with you and I love these ideas, these comparisons, the flower and the river for life. My follow-up question to the first one about what life is, what do you think is the opposite of life? Well, I mean, look, if we were just using words, you would, you would think the opposite to life is death. <laughs> right. Think about the word death. Now, we, we tend to think of it as mainly, um, you know, physical death. But if something is not alive, it is dying or it is dead. So if you then put that into any aspect of life, a relationship can be alive or it can be dying or it can be dead. If you have a dream in your heart to accomplish something in life, to fulfill some purpose, that dream can make you come alive. However, too many discouragements and disappointments along the way can sometimes make a dream die. Um, so, so death isn't just about physical death. Death is about unfulfilled potential. If a young child dies, we think of the life that they didn't get to live, their unfulfilled potential. But what if your dream dies? What if your career trap dies? What if, think of all, you may still be breathing and alive, but there is so much unfulfilled potential. And um, I think that what makes people come alive, what makes people feel alive is when they're doing something that brings personal fulfillment to them and also fulfills some purpose in the world. And so when we're not doing that, even though we're physically alive, we're, we're dead, you know, we're dead inside. So many people are dead inside because they've allowed their dreams to die and their hopes. And, um, uh, you know, again, to quote the Bible, that in the book of Proverbs, it says, hope deferred crushes the spirit. But when a dream comes true, it brings new life. And so we can be, we can be alive physically, but our our spirit can be crushed. Our hopes can be crushed. And so the opposite of life is death. The opposite of being fully alive is being alive, but not fulfilling your potential, I would think. What is your definition for the word faith? And if you connect faith to hope and trust, are they somehow the same? Um, yeah, I think I would definitely connect faith to trust. I think a lot of people use the word faith to mean a set of beliefs. You know, so um, people will talk about a faith-based organization or something like that, meaning an organization that everybody in it subscribes to a set of beliefs. Now, in some ways, believing in a particular belief is a form of faith. However, I don't, I don't think that is really what faith is. I think faith is more, to use the word that you used, trust. So, so let's take, for instance, so I'm a pastor. Most of the things like that I'm going to say today obviously come out of my own journey, and my faith is Christian-based. Now, people from other traditions might be able to listen to what I'm saying and apply it in their situations, okay? But So obviously I'm going to use language that speaks to me and relates to my life journey. And so I'm going to be using Christian language. So 
So like tr- faith, if I was to have faith in God, that would mean I am trusting God. It doesn't just mean I believe that there's a God there or something like that. It needs to be that there is a sense of trust that someone is working for my best interest. I might not see it. I might not know all the details, but there is somebody that I can, who is utterly trustworthy. Therefore, I can trust. Now, hope, I think hope is a little bit different than faith. I think, um, I think hope tends to be, hope is a future tense thing. You know, we hope for something to happen. So um, to me, hope is like setting a goal. But faith is, I can, I can be in a position of faith or trust right now in this moment. But I can set a goal. I can hope that next week things will change in a certain way. So I kind of think of it like setting a thermostat. Um, I kind of think of hope as being like the thermostat and faith as being like the furnace. If it was 18 degrees and I turned my, uh, I'm in Canada, so we use Celsius. So <laughs> I don't know if I Fahrenheit. So um, if it was 18 degrees, which probably sounds cold in Fahrenheit, and I turned that, the, I turned the thermostat to 25, I have just set a goal. Even though it says 25, it's not yet 25. But the furnace will kick in and gradually bring it to 25, right? So I think hope is when I set a goal and then my faith will kick in and gradually take me towards that goal. I never heard of that before, but that makes so much sense to me about hope being this state of mind that has to do with goals and future. And then faith and trust, you connect to those two words that has a lot to do with the present moment, the here and now. This is a question I often ask. Do you see a difference between beliefs and values? It would depend. Like every, I think everybody would have a different definition of those two words. So, um, so like what, what somebody might call a value that they hold, I might look at, I might look at it as a belief that they hold, you know, and vice versa. Um, I think it's possible to have values that transcend beliefs. So, for instance, I, I've already mentioned that I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian. However, I can think of values that I would share with Buddhists. We may believe, dif- we may have different theological beliefs but we may have the same values, for instance, a value of of being compassionate towards all living beings. There's a value. Now, some people might call that a belief, but I don't think it, I think probably that's more a value because you could have you could have that value regardless of your particular beliefs. So I think perhaps to perhaps values transcend beliefs. Yeah. I don't think beliefs are wrong. I have beliefs, <laughs> but I differentiate between my, so to get back to the faith and trust thing, when it comes to God, I have faith in God. I have beliefs about God. My beliefs may be accurate or may not be accurate. I may tweak them and change them along the way. Um, but but so But faith in God is more of a personal experience rather than a set of of beliefs that I check off on a list in my mind, you know? 
Right, right. Like rules and the, the solid yeah. ideas about life, right? And when you compare life to a river, that kind of makes sense not to hold on to too many solid ideas or concepts, right? So continue with my warm-up questions. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Martin? To, to be to live fully free would be uh, to to be to live a life where you are able to discover who you are as a unique person and to be able to then express that uniqueness to live from your heart i would think now now if you think of countries where which are not politically free where there's oppression and so on People are not free to express their true inner selves, uh, you know, by law. You could be arrested for, I mean, like, apparently in North Korea, there's only five haircuts you're allowed to have. <laughs> you wow. Could, if you put the wrong <laughs> haircut, you could. So there's no personal expression allowed. And, and if you go back a little bit in time in China, when they went through the Cultural Revolution and they made everybody wear, you know, the same clothing. There was no personal expression allowed. Now, if you come to a, a more free society, a more democratic society, where you are by law allowed to express your uniqueness and live in your from your own heart, there's still peer pressure against it. There's still all kinds of fear and anxiety that people have to actually become themselves. Um, there was a famous um, theologian and philosopher who once said, you know, he came to a point in his life, perhaps like a midlife crisis or something like that, where he had he had been trying to be this um, uh, good uh, religious person. His name was Soren Kierkegaard, and he was a Lutheran in Europe, and he was trying to fit into that religious system. But he found that his personal experience of spiritual things didn't fit in with the system very much. And he wrote that the greatest revelation of his life was this. He said it this way. Now, with God's help, I shall finally become myself. And I think when people come to that place, I think that is freedom. You're not trying to prove who you are. You're not being argumentative about it. You're not, you've got nothing to prove. You just want to live as the person you truly are within. Beautifully said. I have two more questions for you before we talk about your book. What do you think is the world's greatest need at this time? Right now, as we look about uh, with what's been going on over the last few months, as this is being recorded, uh, we're still in, in lockdown in many places with the pandemic and so on. And what you, I mean, what you see is two needs arising out of people's hearts. You see it on social media, you see it on comments. The first one is people crave human connection. And when they're deprived of that, um, because they're not allowed to mix in public and so on, um, even connecting even connecting with people online is not the same, you know? Right. People crave human connection. And of course, a lot of experts are now talking about how a prolonged lockdown and, and quarantine can adversely affect people's mental health and so on because it, it is inbuilt into the human nature that we crave human connection. The other thing is 
people are looking for something something or someone or to take away their anxiety over what's going on. Who can they trust? Can they trust the, what the politicians are saying? Can they trust the medical professionals? Can they trust that conspiracy theory video that they saw? You know, and so, and when I look at the kinds of comments and the kinds of things that, that people are expressing at this season in the world's history, it reminds me of what Jesus said. Jesus was asked, what is the most important thing? You said to me, what does the world need the most? Jesus was asked, what is the most important thing that we can do? And he answered, there's two. There's two important things. Number one is to love God with your whole being. And number two is to love other people the way you love yourself. In other words, he's saying you are looking for assurance that you're looking for peace, you're looking for someone to trust. And Jesus always depicted God as a father, as a parental figure, not as a judge, not as a police officer, um, not as an old man in the sky, but uh, as a, a parental figure. So he's saying the, the, the answer, to, I, I think that to take those words of Jesus and apply it to now, the answer to your anxiety over what's going on in the world right now is, you need someone that you can trust, someone who is trustworthy. And there is a, an invisible presence with you always, mm. a parental, caring, providing presence. If you will just open up to that presence, your anxieties will be relieved. You will find faith. You will find trust. And the second most important thing is you need to connect with other people. You need to both give and receive love from other human beings because that's the way we were, we were designed. So when Jesus was asked that question, you asked me, that was what he said. Those two things were the most important. And honestly, as I have been looking at the way people have been coping or not coping with the current COVID-19 situation and with lockdowns and with quarantine, it, the two needs that people are expressing, although they all express them in different words, the two needs are, I need someone that I can trust so that my mind will be at peace. And number two, I need other human beings in my life. And so I think those are the two greatest needs. I think Jesus pinpointed them, and I think many of us are discovering them afresh just now. You spoke of two words. I have questions for them, love and God. The first question is, what is love? And second, where is God? I think I can probably answer both of the questions in one sentence. <laughs> so the Bible says God is love. And anyone who lives in love lives in God and God lives in them. So um, so love, so a definition of love. Well, I think, first of all, I mean, like the very first step is at least compassion to have compassion on other people, even people that um, even people that we think don't deserve compassion. You know, I think I think part of spiritual awareness is realizing that people are the way they are because of unresolved issues that they have. Right. So an angry person, you know, if somebody is angry, our tendency is to be angry back towards them. You know, it's like to mirror what they are doing. If somebody starts shouting angrily at you, your temptation is to shout angrily back at them, you know? 
However, compassion, which I think is probably like the first step to of love, is would say, this person, this is not about me. I didn't do anything that warranted that. There is something wrong with this person. This person has had something happen to them in life to make them this way, you know? So having compassion for people, even when we think they don't deserve it, I think is the first step. Again, when Jesus was talking about love, he said that a lot. He said, you know, all of us could examine our lives and realize that none of us deserve compassion. And yet he says, your heavenly father is compassionate towards you. Should you not be towards others? So um, so this idea that, again, of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If we behave badly, usually we know inside why we've done it, that we're upset about something or other. So we we tend to judge ourselves by our good intentions, but we tend to judge other people by their actions, and we have got no idea what their good intentions were. Mm, right. So I think the first step of love is giving other people the benefit of the doubt right. and showing some compassion towards them. And, and, and then I think love goes beyond that to doing for the person something that you would want someone to do for you if you were in a similar situation. That's beautiful. True. <laughs> God, God, so God, well, I kind of define God as love. God is love, the Bible says. So where is God? Well, in the scriptures, again, there are three things that it says God is. Now, there's lots of things that it says God does, you know, like God hears your prayers. But there's only three things that it says God is. Number one, it says God is love. Number two, it says God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So in other words, God doesn't have a dark side to his nature, which might come as a surprise to lots of religious people who love to preach about an angry God, you know? Yeah, punishing God too. (laughs) Yeah, a judgmental God. And But the Bible says God doesn't have a dark, he doesn't have shadow issues that he has to deal with like us. (laughs) It says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's not a dark side. That's why I liken the word faith and trust, because I think you can only trust someone if they are utterly trustworthy. And if if God was loving one day and angry the next day, then that would not, you wouldn't know what you were facing. That's true. Um, You can only trust someone who's trustworthy. So God is light and doesn't have, and so I think a lot, you know, a lot of religious people could do with lightening up if they want to be more like God, because God is light, you know. So I think lightening up, uh, being light, being bright, humor, happiness, brightness, the, the absence of darkness is another description of God. And then Jesus said, God is spirit. And it doesn't, you don't have to go to a temple to find him. He's present everywhere, spirit. So God is spirit. So where is God? God is the invisible life force that animates all things. So God is right here with me, right there with you, the invisible presence that is with everyone and everything. And um but we tend to we tend to humanize God and picture God as like a big person sitting on a throne yeah. far, far away, you know? And I think that that leads to all kinds of toxic um religious ideas that make us feel separate from God and make God feel distant rather than 
the presence that is with us right now, the supporting presence, loving presence, love, light, and omnipresent. I love so many things that you said. God is love, compassion before judgment, and God's everywhere. Now, some people, some people don't like the word God, and they'll, they will say the universe and things like that. Yeah. I, I think quite often the reason some people don't like the word God is possibly because they have had a negative experience, maybe growing up or something like that, right. in a fundamentalist-type religious environment yeah. in which God was the angry judge in the sky that was, that was always trying to catch you out doing something wrong. You know, right. and I think if people could just flip and, and really in the Bible, that's that was that was why Jesus upset all the religious people, because Jesus came along and totally flipped the whole image from a distant, angry God to a present, loving, invisible presence. That's very much true. Yeah. So many of us had this experience with those um, beliefs, conventional beliefs and ideas about God, right? And then some of us refuse to use the word. I don't, but most do. Yeah. So let's talk about your book. What was the inspiration and the intention of writing Secrets of Spiritual Growth? It's been a, that book has been a long, long time coming. Um, when I was younger, in my late teen, teens, I was searching for something spiritual in life. So I would read all kinds of books. Some of them were pretty weird, you know. And, and in fact, sometimes when you're spiritually seeking, you have an idea that the weirder something is, the better, you know. So, I mean, I really read weird stuff <laughs> and um, didn't, it didn't have any help. But also, um, I, I kind of searched for those kind of things in psychedelic drugs and hippie type culture and that kind of thing. And until eventually I really messed myself up pretty bad. And I had anxiety and all kinds of things as a result. And my mother was really worried about me. She didn't know what to do. And she, she went to a local church. And so she called the pastor of that church to ask him for advice and, and, he said, oh, I don't know anything about these things. But he said, the pastor at the Baptist church used to be a hippie. Maybe he would know about things like psychedelics. <laughs> so she called him and he said, yeah, yeah, I, I used to be a hippie. Yeah, I'll, I'll meet your son. So I, I met with this guy and he was such a down-to-earth, normal person. But yet his life had obviously, like that image of the flower, he had opened up and blossomed. He had found what he was looking for. And I was really intrigued by this. And so um, he began to take me to different events, uh, sometimes small groups that met informally in homes, as well as to churches and things like that. And eventually I came to a place where I uh, put my faith in Jesus Christ and I became a Christian and I was healed of all of those anxiety and inner issues, I entered into just a beautiful relationship with God, you know, ex experiencing God's presence. And But then a few years later, I noticed that there were different kinds of Christians. There were nice ones and not so nice ones. Mm -hmm. There were loving ones and there were judgmental ones. Mm -hmm. And I also noticed that if I listened to preachers or read spiritual books, 
you got these two different stories, two, almost like two different versions of the same faith, you know? Yeah. And in my desire to be very sincere in my beliefs, I found myself becoming judgmental, legalistic, harsh, like a lot of people do. And I didn't like what I saw happen to me. I thought that I was becoming more serious about my faith. But I, then I realized that I was actually just becoming more of a jerk about it, you know. And 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 so I had to I had to do a little bit of introspection and contemplation and realize where I was going wrong. And then when I became a pastor and I was in charge of congregations and I got the chance to see other people, I saw that this was a common thing. I saw that many people came to faith in God because of his love and his forgiveness and um and 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 you know like I I I do say him and his when I'm speaking about God although the Bible also says God is a mother and a father so there's no there's no gender in God but I have the habit of saying using the masculine mm-hmm. um, but just for your listeners you, you know the Bible also says God is like a mother feeding her children you know so mm-hmm. I began to watch other people whose lives were transformed by a spiritual awakening when they discovered that God was a God of love. But then a few years later, they too, in an attempt to become more serious or committed in their faith, would become more argumentative Mm -hmm. and would start to judge other people for things that they used to do themselves. And so I thought there's something wrong here. And so I, I began to study the the whole concept of spiritual growth because what it looked to me in my experience and others that I was watching, and I and this is a big problem in the Christian church, and I understand that this is why a lot of people have problems with Christianity because of this very thing. Right, right. That people dis people discover a God of love who forgives them, who accepts them, who supports them, who hears their prayers, and they begin to grow spiritually. And then at some point, they buy into a lie. And the lie is, you've you've now grown as, as much as you need to grow. If you learn anything new, somebody might trick you with something that's false. So stop learning anything new and now defend the few things that you have discovered from any other attacks and so like you see on social media you see religious people from different traditions debate and argue with each other and nobody's ever convinced by it and so I began to study spiritual growth and I realized that spiritual growth actually has incremental stages and sometimes when people are growing spiritually a lot of their beliefs will change from one stage to the next. Mm-hmm. And something which was really important to them and a big deal at one stage, they will eventually outgrow that. Its usefulness is no longer there for them anymore. It helped them at the time. And they now outgrow that belief and change it. They change their beliefs as they're growing. However, a lot of people are scared to give up old beliefs because there's because they know that it was helpful at the time therefore it must be true therefore i'm giving up something that's true 
that's a good point. I think looking at whether something is true or not is not the best way to look at something. Like, again, to use the COVID-19 situations, we're being bombarded every day on the media by how many deaths there are for it, from it. And that might be true, but it's not necessarily helpful. You know, there's a lot of, because if we were to see all the deaths from every other disease, you might have a panic attack, you know? Yeah, right. Many. So I think a good evaluation of something is not just whether it's true or not, but whether it's helpful or not, because something may be true, but at this stage in your life, it might not be helpful. Mm, I love that, Martin. So true. And so the reason I wrote that, the reason I wrote the book, it, this brings us back full circle to your very first question about faith and trust and hope was because I realized in my own life and I witnessed it in other people's lives that I began with that faith to me was trust, trust in God, trust in the creator, trust in my loving heavenly parent who is here to support me, right? It's a, it was an experiential thing. But then as I learned more about God, I slowly transferred my trust from God to trust in my set of beliefs. And then I have to defend my set of beliefs. And so what I discovered was my beliefs will change throughout my life, but my sense of faith or trust can stay the same because they are not dependent on individual beliefs. If I think that individual beliefs or doctrines or theological truths or something, if I think that that is what my trust and faith is placed in, I will argue, I will debate, I will fight to the death to prove that they're right. But if I realize that no matter how true my beliefs are, they are simply my best attempt using my human mind to try and put into words the incomprehensible. Mm. And, you know, then I will say, I will reword my beliefs. I might even change some of my beliefs, but my sense of a personal trust in God and in his plan for my life, that can remain. That is what spiritual growth is. It is not adding new beliefs. It is an it's an experiential thing. It is like a relationship. It's almost like a marriage. If someone has been married for decades, they hopefully they haven't just accumulated more pieces of information about their spouse. Yeah. Hopefully they've actually got to know their spouse better. Right. I see spiritual growth not as accumulating beliefs about God or the universe or whatever. Accumulating beliefs isn't bad. Accumulate beliefs that are helpful and discard them when they're unhelpful. Right. But they're not spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is more like a an intimate relationship. When you say the faith journey is as important as the destination, I'm just wondering if there is a spiritual destination. Is there a destination really in spirituality? <clears throat> Maybe when you die. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of people do think there's a destination in this life. You know, once I reach enlightenment, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. once I once I have reached some spiritual level, then I will have arrived in my spiritual journey. But I, I, and, and it's really tempting to think like that, especially if you're a goal oriented person. And I tend to be a goal oriented person. 
So it's a great temptation for me to, to think that as far as spirituality is concerned, once I reach a certain goal or level, then I've arrived, you know? And I had to completely rethink um, the whole thing. And the river of life idea really helped me there when I thought, okay, if life is like a river, it's not like a highway, it's not a straight line, there are unexpected things will happen in life. Now, I can still plan within that, I can still plan my next destination in my journey of life or my journey of faith or my spiritual journey. But I also need to be open to the fact that things might not go according to my plans. And even when I reach that destination, I will discover that all that was was yet another learning step. I think the whole faith journey, when I say the journey is as important as the destination, the destination probably actually isn't that important. Mm. It is actually the journey. We think it's the destination. If you look at, you know, the the whole concept of the hero's journey. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that, of course, in lots of movies and novels today, as well as back in ancient history. But, you know, when the, he- when the hero gets to the end of their journey, the hero thinks they're on a mission. Yeah. They're on a mission to re- recover the golden fleece or throw the ring into Mount Doom or whatever it may be. You know, the, the hero always thinks they're on a mission. But actually, once the mission's complete, the hero discovers that the- it was never about the mission. It was about the way the hero was going to be changed through all of the experiences on the journey. And so at the end of the hero's journey, you know, Jason and the Argonauts go back to Greece. Uh, Frodo Baggins and Pippin Baggins go back to the Shire or whatever it may be. They all go back, but they go back as a changed person. And so I think the journey is what it's all about because we change it goes back to that idea of the river, right? The flowing. So I have a few more questions for you. Final questions. They are unrelated to the topic, but you can always connect back. Before I do that, would you like to add anything or read a passage from your book? Well, I could. Let, let me just find this one. It will take me a second or two. I think this one will especially be helpful for anyone listening who is interested in a spiritual journey and yet is very reluctant to open their mind to Christianity for whatever reason, because maybe because of bad experiences and so on. And I'm, I think this will help you because this was a real big turning point for me as well. Um, if this is the kind of Christianity people have experienced, then I sympathize with them. <laughs> so th- this is from my book, and this explains One of the big reasons I wrote it, I wrote, I I was once flicking through TV channels when I saw a preacher come on that I recognized. I usually liked what he had to say, so I stopped at the channel and watched a bit. It was shocking. I missed the beginning, but he was clearly preaching about sin and judgment. So that is often the image that people have in their mind. You know, I'm going to be condemned if I listen to a preacher, right? And anyway, he was speaking about sin and judgment, and he made this statement. You might not like what I'm preaching, but I have to preach it to you. Because if I don't preach it, I might end up in hell myself. Here was a man who was responsible for thousands of people in his church. 
for teaching them good news of, of the good news that Christ shared. And even he doesn't have assurance that God loves them. Even he doesn't know for sure that he is forgiven, that his eternal destination is secure, that he is safe in his father's hands. Would you trust a pilot who told you, I might even die in a plane crash <laughs> myself? And then I wrote, the more I listened to him, the clearer it became. He was a good person with good intentions. But someone had rushed him through the stages of spiritual growth to ensure that he had all the correct beliefs. This is the question. He knew a lot, but he was insecure about his relationship with God and now was passing that insecurity on to others. Stop and think for a moment. What kind of image of God must you have if you believe that if you mess up one sermon, you would end up in hell? It's quite, I mean, it, it's almost like a mental health issue in some ways. <laughs> because the, the anxiety that those beliefs must produce to be constantly worried that there is someone who is invisible and all-powerful and angry watching your every move. Think of the psychological effect that has on people. It would make them run away from faith and spirituality altogether. Yeah. And yet Jesus revealed the exact opposite. He said, let the little children come to me. Let the prostitutes come to me. Let the sinners come to me. Let the only people that had a problem with Jesus were the religious people, you know. And so that those kinds of like hearing that man say that and coming across people of faith who have somehow driven down a, a, a dead end in life and got stuck there. And I've ended up with a very toxic version of faith. That was really what gave me the burden to write this book, to help people out of that and to help them to get back into following the path of life and of love and of grace. And you do a wonderful job, really wonderful job with your message. Thank you, Martin. Thanks. What is your definition of success? What is to be successful to you? My favorite definition, I've heard lots of definitions of success, and my favorite one was the one that Errol Nightingale used to use. And uh, in fact, in his famous course, Lead the Field, I think he uses it all the time in it. He says, success is the progressive realization of a worthy goal. Success is the progressive realization of a worthy goal. So he said, you might have an amazing goal, but if you're not progressively realizing it, that's not success. You might have a goal that is a terrible goal and you achieve it. That's not success either. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> Even if you've not reached your goal, if you are progressively realizing it, you are a success today. So if it, let's say it was your goal to have an online business. Some people might think, well, I won't call myself a success until the business is up and running and I'm making a certain amount of money. But actually, as long as they are progressively realizing that goal, even if, if today all they did was sit down and set up a website, if that was all they did and they completed it, they're a success today because they are, that was progress towards their ultimate goal. 
And so I think success is a progressive thing. I don't think it is like, I'm a failure, a failure, a failure, a failure, bang, I'm now a success. I don't think it works that way. And I think that true success is when you're doing something that not only fulfills a purpose, but brings personal fulfillment to you as well. So if you're, you could be very successful at making money doing a job you hate. That's not success either. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? Um, the hardest lesson I ever learned was the law of attraction, I think. <laughs> and that was because um, before, and I'm going back a couple of decades here, it was before I really knew about the law of attraction. I mean, like I'd heard the phrase, the phrase was actually invented by a couple of Christian Bible teachers originally, although yeah. it, then, it then became popular amongst lots of other people. But the reality of it, I didn't really know the reality of it until one day I was going through an absolutely terrible time in my life where it involved a, a legal situation and and it was it, it dragged on for a couple of years. It was not only financially devastating, it was emotionally draining. And so one night I prayed about it. Well, I'm, I say I prayed, but I really complained. I just, all I did was just complain to God. Why are you letting bad things happen to me? That kind of thing. And as clear as anything, I heard a sentence. You created this yourself. And it was, I was so shocked by it. It felt like somebody had slapped me in the face. In fact, I was so shocked by it, I argued. And I continued to pray and say, no, I didn't. I didn't create nice. this, you know, and then it became clear. You worried that this situation could happen. You focused on it. You thought about it. You talked about it. You gave off negative body language to the people involved in it. You attracted this into your life. And so I prayed and said, God, if I really attracted this into my life, I need you to prove this to me. I, this thought has come to me, but I need evidence and I need to know how to attract good things and stop attracting bad things. And so in my journal, I wrote down a few sentences and I, that, and said that I had prayed for, for this. The next day, not, not the next day, about three or four days later, in the mail, I got junk mail that I would normally have just thrown in the trash. But this said, you know, without opening it, but this said on the envelope, this had something written on, printed on the envelope. And it was the very words that I had just written down in my journal a few days. Before. I mean, it was word for word right. wow. um, about how you attract things into your life. So I opened it up and it was from for some course. I think it was Wayne Dyer, actually. I can't remember. But it was for some course on the law of attraction. I ordered it and listened to it. And before I knew it, the law of attraction became so real to me. I could suddenly see how I had been creating and attracting all of the negative things in my life that I had been complaining about. And that once I realized this, not only could I stop attracting them, but I could actually attract good stuff too. Yeah. Now, the law of attraction is, I think, one of the most liberating truths. The Bible calls it the law, talks about it and calls it the law of faith in one place and calls it the law of sowing and reaping in other places, that whatever you sow, you shall reap. Whatever you put out, you will attract back. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, even in the, the verse that I quoted from Jesus at the beginning of this interview, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's all attraction. And so once you once you discover it, it can be the most liberating and joy-filled thing because you get to choose what you attract, but it's the accepting it at the beginning that is the hardest because people hear it and and like I actually believe that when I prayed it was God that said to me you created this and how I heard it was and people hear it this way I'm a victim of circumstances and now you're blaming the victim right but then if you can if you can get that idea out your mind and say no this is not about blaming the victim this is about empowering the victim to no longer be a victim. Mm, yeah. And so that was probably the hardest lesson I had to learn, but it has probably also been one of the most helpful that I've ever learned. And I tell you, my prayers are filled, my prayers are prayers are of affirmation now, filled with positive affirmations and to, to not only not only call those things to me, but to change the way I think and and renew my mind. That makes a lot of sense as well. Yeah, by change our thoughts, our lives will change, yeah, inevitably. Uh, Again, to quote the Bible, it says, as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. We become what we think about in our hearts. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I don't think so, apart from maybe if I knew, I would, let's say I knew I was going to die next week, I might not agree to do any podcasts with anybody <laughs> <laughs> and just oh. spend all my time with my family, you know. Right. Um, but no, I, that's a, that is a good question if to, to, for you to discover whether you're doing the right thing with your life as you should. I think if my answer was yes, I would change a lot of things, then I should probably change them without dying. You know? Right, for sure. Yeah. I, I think I am on the path that I should be on just now, and I would just continue down it. Yeah, I love to hear that, Martin. So my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Three things I know for sure about life is number one, Our life didn't begin when we were born. We came here to experience this world. Yet many people, especially people of faith, especially more religious people, avoid experiencing this world. They hide from the world. So we, let me put it this way. um, Somebody worded it this way once. We are not human beings who occasionally have spiritual experiences. We are spiritual beings who have come here to have a human experience. So I would say we are here to experience life. Don't get to the end of it without having truly lived it. The second thing that I absolutely know for sure is that God is love. Like I know that I don't just believe that. I know that. I have proven it. God is love. And if you want to know God, the Bible says anyone who lives in love lives in God and God lives in them. And so God is love and has become a constant companion to me. Like 
developing, and it's taken me years to become aware of this, but just to have a constant awareness of that invisible divine presence with me, that has changed my life. I know for sure that the loving, invisible presence of God is always with me. And the third thing I know for sure is we're all going to die, and we're all going to have regrets when we die. Let's do everything in our power to have as few regrets as possible. That's interesting to hear that way, in a way you're saying that everyone will have regrets. That made me think. <laughs> but what regrets would I have? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, good um, reflecting. Yeah, it's good for thought at least, yeah. It is, yeah, very much. Thank you so much for your presence and your wisdom and your love. Well, yeah, I love how genuine you are, how... Yeah, this idea of God, that God's love, it can be manifested. I can hear that. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. It's, it's been a pleasure being with you. And my last technical question, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? So if you go to my website, martintrench.com, which is actually down just now. It's down for a few days, it's, but it'll be back up by the time people hear this. So martintrench.com is my main website, um, or you can also get me at gateway.ac, gateway.ac. Or if you go on YouTube or Facebook and just search my name, you'll find me. There, I have lots of free videos online, various seminars on different different topics, and, and I try to make things, I try to make spiritual, spirituality and um, Bible teaching, I try to make it practical, something that you can apply in real life uh, rather than theoretical. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Martin, and we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Martin Trench, please visit his website, martintrench.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.